This is Unleash Africa, the place to find news and information about the growth and development of the countries in Africa. I'm your co-host, Zach Smith. Soon we'll be joined by our host, John Akile, author of Unleashed, a new paradigm of African trade with the world. In this episode, we have part two of a recent series on governance competency being the key to economic prosperity for African countries. Listen how government projects such as steel mills work for South Korea, but failed multiple times in Nigeria. Without further ado, welcome, John. Hello, listeners. Uh, Welcome to another episode of Unleash Africa podcast. Uh, This is the podcast that... uh, really focuses on the continent. We have been working on um, dissecting uh, the primary source of failure of African countries. I'm very careful to use that term. Um, But, you know, facts do not lie. And the fact is African countries remain the poorest in the world. Um, You know, we're getting the, the least from the resources that um, Almighty God has made available to that continent. In other words, based on the resources African countries have, the continent is deriving the least return on the natural investment that has been made in the continent of Africa, whether it's uh, seed, soil, and sunshine, which is this basic raw material of human nature, right? Seed soil, sunshine. Uh, African soil contains immense mineral resources. Uh, South Africa is still uh, the world's most prolific producer of uh, platinum, gold, um, and you've got major reserves in Zimbabwe of gold uh, and other countries. You've got um, Numerous copper, huge producer of copper, DR Congo uh, is a major global source of copper. You have uh, uh, iron ore in Guinea, uh, major deposits of iron ore in numerous countries. And on and on it goes, coltan in DR Congo which uh, is used in uh, cell phone production. There are so many resources that is contained in the ground in African countries that it is a shame that all of the exploitation of these resources are in the hands of foreigners. Let me say that again. The exploitation of virtually all these resources are in the hands of foreigners. Same goes for crude. The exploitation of crude oil in all of African countries is in the main in the hands of foreigners. So let let me boil some of this down. Again, you know, this is the manifestation of the governance failures that we have been talking about. Um, The president of uh, Tanzania Magufuli, did something really unique, very interesting. He forced the uh, companies that were mining gold to 
remake their contract. They had to rework their contract and give Tanzania a significant portion of the ownership of the mines and the entire project. Why is that important? Well, whereas Tanzania has just, had just been, had been getting just taxes, the Canadian company and their global investors that were, you know, mining the gold were making off as like bandits, basically robbing the Tanzanian people blind. Magufuli was bold enough to sit down and he made a, you know, this was, I mean, initially we, we were expecting this to blow up uh, and turn into one of the classic uh, uh, challenges that African countries encounter whenever they try to negotiate uh, uh, better deals. But the man is equipped. I think his, uh, his uh, exposure uh, to American culture and Western culture ha has helped him significantly in his uh, governorship of the, of the in, in his uh, uh, president governorship is, is good because he's a governor of Tanzania. But beyond that, he's president of Tanzania. But anyway, I think what happened um, in that process was, you know, reasonable mind prevailed. The Tanzanian company did not need to have their project blow up in their faces and lose the source of revenue. So they were willing to negotiate life as they should have done in the first place. Right? Tanzania should have been an, a co-owner of that mine. And African countries should take a hint from Magufuli's prowess at the negotiating table. Because these companies come in, or individuals in some cases come in, and they, we've, we have not even talked about diamond production, right? These companies come in, and, and because they have the means to invest in a mining uh, operation, they basically just steal everything from the government from the country and pay, you know, taxes, which somehow by bribing officials, they can also avoid in significant portions, which they do. Every company mining products in the African country, in an African country, should have as its partner the country from which they are drawing the products, literally at the table. The mine, without, without the product the, that's in the ground, without the resources that the mining company is coming to get, there is no business. So by virtue of being the owner of the land from which the, mine, the, the mining company is mining products, the country, the country should be at a table at the minimum with 50%. Okay, maybe the 50% is negotiable. But 50% to me is a reasonable ask in a situation like that. Now, the, the, this is a negotiation. You know, there's no need to turn it into acrimony. There's acrimonious conversation. There's no, you know, wine and dine them. You know, give them, you know, sumptuous sweets to enjoy. You know, give them, you know, sumptuous feasts. And have a negotiation because in the end, it should be a win-win. 
respect the companies because they are bringing tremendous capital and they are bringing uh, expertise. But without the ground from which the mineral is coming, there is nothing. It's like the minerals is the cash. So you have to respect that. And Africans have been negotiating from a crazy perspective because of governance failures. These companies are bribing African leaders with trinkets, whining and dining them overseas, and paying them money on the side, paying African leaders money on the, on the side. And African leaders are turning over their country and their people's resources to them for a few trinkets. This is governance failure at its highest level. So we, we've been hitting on governance failures. This is just an example, right? Governance failure is about being able to make, to create um, a, the right strategy. So what is the biggest challenge facing African, African countries? Lack of money. African countries can't pay their bills. Some countries can't even pay their workers. Government, I'm, I'm referring to government employees without aid. You know, and I've referred to that in the past. That is an absurd situation. Why, why do you have employees that you cannot pay? And you have to depend on aid to pay them. That, that's, that's so crazy on so many fronts. It's not even worth the dignity or, or dignifying by any, any additional comment. A government should not have anybody on their payroll that they cannot cover from either tax revenues or whatever the sources of revenues that they, got, that they have. Aid money should be directed totally, wholly, totally to building capacity, right? So, so you, one day you can win yourself and don't, don't need aid. That money should be building to develop, train people, to uh, uh, promote industrial development in a way that enables uh, the country to begin to earn hard currency, so I, I, I'm, I'm digressing a bit, but you get the point. You, you have a country that requires a, an externality to give it money in order to pay its employees. Yes, enough said about that, right? Anybody, a, a five-year-old can figure out that that is not a winning strategy. So what is the biggest challenge facing African countries? Lack of money. Lack of money. Then what is the solution to lack of money? Earning more money. Every way in which a government can earn money legally, righteously, should be pursued. Africans should pay taxes. Right? You should pay taxes. The countries that, will get, that, that, that give African governments aid, their people pay taxes. The money that African countries get comes from the taxes that those people pay. It's not, the government has no money. No government anywhere in the world has any money. You know, even Norway and, and, and the North Sea. That's not their money. The money belongs to Norwegians. Just like it belongs to the, to, to the British people. You know, the money for crude oil. The countries earn money from the various and sundry taxation that are imposed in order to fund government. Government is like the golden goose that lays the golden egg, the, the goose that lays the golden eggs. Government has to be funded. 
And the people who fund the government are the citizens of the country. The citizens, the businesses, etc., etc. They fund the government. Other than that, government has no resources. So African countries need to figure out how to maximize the flow of resources into their treasury. First, from making sure that they get a, a, a regime of fair taxation. Right? Everybody has to pay their fair share. Fair taxation on the citizens of each country. And then you have to figure a way to magnify the ability of the country to earn hard currency. Uh, And we use the Asians as as a guinea pig example all the time. Right? Because their example is real. You know, this is not something, this is not contrived. This is real. Japan moved from a feudal society using export-oriented industrialization to become, at one point, number two economy in the world. Japan is a small country. People don't realize that. Japan is not a large country. And Japan doesn't have any raw materials. And the population is not that large. They moved to the second largest economy on the planet using export-oriented industrialization. Now Japan is number three, but that is still a very lofty place. And Japan has become a very sophisticated country largely because they mastered the art of importing what they needed in order to export goods and services to the world. The acquisition of... uh, you know, the technology for uh, radios and, and, and uh, electronics uh, in the 60s, uh, the transistor radio being an important one, um, the, the acquisition of that technology from Bell Labs was huge in the development of uh, Sony Industries. Uh, uh, and Sony became the, one of the world's dominant uh, manufacturer and exporter of high-level electronics, high-level sound systems, and still are. They, they still are. Remain so today. So it, its strategy is a crucial element of that process. Japan decided that in order to compete with these countries that were driving, were, were, was um, coming f- to their lands from thousands of miles away and threatening to subjugate Japan to their will, they had to become as strong economically and technologically as the people who were bringing ships that they had never seen before to their shores. And the manner in which they decided to solve that was to grow economically, to turn their feudal society into an industrial society. Hence the Meiji Revolution. And that has led to the Japan that we see today. The same goes for um, Taiwan. Taiwan faced the threat, you know, when the Kuomintang were expelled from, from China, they moved to Taiwan, set up a competing government and society and country, and, you know, their, their aim was to compete with, uh, with uh, you know, to, to be strong and to be able to defend themselves uh, from China. Maybe not necessarily to compete 
directly with China because China is a huge country with, with at that time, hundreds of millions of people, uh, but at least to be able to stand their ground and, and defend their territory. And, and that's what uh, Taiwan has done. Through multiple strategies and strategic moves and tactics to execute this strategy, Taiwan, through governance competency, has become one of the leading industrial countries in the world. Hong Kong is an exa- another example. And then, you know, the, 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 the most amazing example, of course, is Singapore and South Korea. These countries should not be prosperous. They don't even have the resources and means to fund a prosperity drive. They became prosperous because of the wisdom. Let me, the wisdom, crucial, most important element in governance competency is wisdom. The wisdom of the leaders of Singapore and South Korea. To identify what they needed, to formulate a strategy, and then to develop tactics that will enable them to win that strategy. I'll give you a case in point. Let's use uh, South Korea as an example. South Korea, under uh, Park Chung-hee, realized, oops, if we do import substitution industrialization for much longer, we are going to be broke and unable to salute. Okay? So they determined that they had to find a way to amplify the flow of hard currency resources into South Korean treasury, which they did. By the way, how did they do it? All hands on deck. They promoted exports as the means to an end for South Korea. In other words, the entire country got behind the idea that manufacturing for export was the way to go. Then various tactics. They made it possible for potential exporters in South Korea to borrow from the banking institutions. By the way, they nationalized the banks so the banks would go along um, with the directive. Basically, they made the banks to become export-oriented lenders. So the banks funded companies who were looking to export. And of course, if they didn't do well, they, they shunted them aside and promoted those that were doing well. So not everybody was successful. Uh, not every South Korean company that started in export or rent, uh, exporting was successful. But the good news is the ones that became successful created the lynch pain, created the launch pad for South Korea to become industrialized and to grow to become one of the top 15 economies in the world. Powerful tactics, right? Empowering South Koreans to export, supporting the successful exporters. In fact, uh, Park Chung-hee uh, was the, uh, sat at the head table, chaired the meeting of the Export Promotion Council of South Korea. And they met every month and they would announce um, export success and award medals to the uh, successful companies. 
the number one exporter, number two, number three, and so on and so forth. Every month, receive the medal from the president of the country. Now, what does that say to everybody in the country? What does that, how does that impact everybody who is trying to be an entrepreneur in the country? Oh, here's the business that you should get in. F- figure out what to sell abroad and get to manufacturing it. Well, and here's what the, go- the government of, of South Korea also did. They put a, a dynamic super minister, Chung Yeon, in charge of that drive. Okay, I've talked about the fact that you need super ministers. These are people who are they're not looking to, to become millionaires by stealing money. They, they wouldn't steal money if you gave it to them. These are people with integrity. These are people driven by patriotism. These are people who want to make a mark, who want to succeed so that their country can be better. Chung Yong was one of those people. Well, he ran this, this program for South Korea. Needless to say, he succeeded because this is a guy who was ultra-motivated to achieve the very best for the people and the country of South Korea. His department did the research for the top 13 initial products that to promote for export. In other words, the country went abroad, studied the global market and said, okay, these are things we can do. You know, it involves high, you know, employing a lot of people. So it's a labor, these are labor intensive things. And we can make these things and we can sell them in these countries, you know. And they turn the Koreans loose to go out and achieve that. Right? This, this is setting the strategy that is the right strategy and then, you know, maximizing, okay, weaponizing. The strategy in order to go out and make a mark on the planet. Governance competency. That's what it takes. You can't sit there and be wondering how you can make you know, money on this project and that project if you are doing this. And, and you know, the, the little segue, I think this is the right place for it. So Africans generally react to people who are coming to sell them projects. Okay? They come in, for, for instance, why would a country build two steel mills when they haven't secured the source of raw material for those, for those mills? Why would you do that? Why would you sink hundreds of millions of dollars into building two steel projects Yet, you have no raw materials. Needless to say, the projects became mothballed, never producing any steel, never doing anything. So, there is a huge gap between a a country that does not have a steel mill and a country that has a steel mill and is producing steel successfully. Huge gap. A gap in expertise a gap in supply structure, right? A supply chain set up to supply those, the meal, one or more meals. There's a gap in marketing. If you, these gaps are not adequately filled, if these gaps are not adequately bridged, 
then if you set up a steel mill, that, that steel mill is going to fail. It's going to fail because not adequate attention was paid to the supply. That's continuing, present and continuing for however long that mill exists, raw materials. Those sources of raw materials have to be identified up front. Contracts for the raw materials have to be signed and embedded into the process of developing the company or the steel mill. Then you have expertise. Who's going to drive the train of the steel mill? A steel mill is a huge venture. Who's going to drive it? Who's going to make sure the steel mill produces as it runs like it's supposed to run? Produces steel like it's supposed to produce? Because this same person is in charge of making sure that there is a market where they're going to sell the steel that is produced, right? This, this person is the lifeblood of the steel mill. Needless to say, this is Nigeria's uh, foray into steel production. Abject failure. Why did it fail? I'll tell you why it failed. Like most things that happen in Nigeria, it failed because the people who embarked on the steel project were not care, they didn't care about what, what was going to happen at the end. They didn't care about what, you know, whether this company produced steel or not. They didn't care where the marketing of the steel products would take place. They, had no, they didn't care what the source of revenue was. This was a source of money for the people who approved the project. They siphoned their money, put it away in foreign banks, they don't care what happens to the Nigerian people and the money that was go- that is, the, the, the money that belongs to the Nigerian people. They f- to them, the money belongs to them. It's their time to eat. Their time to chop, as they say. So if your primary you know, motivation in signing an agreement on behalf of the country is to line your pocket, well, guess what? The people who are lining your pocket now know you're a thief, meaning you can't supervise them, you can't hold them accountable, otherwise they'll leak the fact that you stole to the papers and you'll be exposed. So you are joint thieves. So whatever they put up in your country may be a shackle that doesn't work, even though it costs your people hundreds of millions of dollars. Nigeria is still spending money on Ajakota and uh, the other steel mill. Very shameful. Very, very shameful. I think now they are into it to the tune of several billion dollars. That's dollars. Right? And it's, 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 well, beyond shameful is crazy. Right? This is a, this is a lunatic venture. That, that, that was established by lunatics, by robbers, by thieves. And, and what they really should do to this, to this because what, these things are, you know, 30 plus years ongoing. They should basically shoot those mills and, and leave that project because it's not a, uh, a money-making venture for the country. Now, juxtapose that with South Korea. Park Chung-hee wanted to build a steel mill. 
because they had made enough progress that he saw that the next level um, of development for South Korea was to go into massive industrialization where South Korea can make, can produce cars and so on and so forth, especially military weaponry, right? Ships and, and all, all that type of stuff. And so he wanted to produce, um, uh, he wanted to, um, uh, to produce steel. Well, they went to the uh, World Bank. The World Bank flatly denied, d- refused them. And the U.S. being a major part decision maker in the World Bank, of course, um, was part of the rejection. They just didn't see South Korea succeeding uh, in producing high-quality steel uh, that would compete with other steel makers in the world. They, they thought it was going to be a total abject failure. And, and, um, and there were examples around the world that they could point to, oh, look at what, those, look at what happened to that country. Look at what happened to that country. Look at what, uh, however, it remains today that steel is a huge part of taking a leap into an industrialized society. Steel remains that, a central figure, a central um, element of competency in the production of to become an industrialized nation. Well, Park Chung-hee had the vision, the foresight to see this. And then, you know, he just didn't put anybody in charge. He put one of his fully trusted buddies, an army general, a former army, a retired army general in charge of Pohan Iron and Steel Company. And what the man did was to turn Pohan Iron and Steel Industry from its inception as a fledgling steel company into one of the world's most prolific producer of steel. And this man's name, anybody can Google him, Park Tae-jun. Park Tae-jun. You know, uh, the president of uh, a Japanese steelmaker, when Deng Xiaoping went to him to ask him uh, if, uh, you know, that they wanted to build steel, uh, to, to set up steel plants in, uh, in China, um, he said, he, you know, posed the now uh, legendary question, do you have a Park Tae-jun? Meaning, do you have a guy like that with the commitment that he has in order to produce steel? And uh, China has since become a major steel producer. But, but that question is instructive, right? Park Tae-jun was not a minister. Park Tae-jun was plucked from his post to go run this, this thing that uh, South Korea, Park Chung-hee had invested all that the country had. Hundreds of millions of dollars. And they were able to negotiate a means 
uh, where Japan became the benef the uh, the benefactor of the of the of the plant, and and it's a very unique um, counter trade transaction that took place, right? Um, you know, it, it's just a creative deal making, but they made the deal, and the result is history. Pohang Industrial is, still, is, a, is a fantastic producer of steel, right? And Pohang became, within 10 years, I believe, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, within 10 years, Pohang Iron and Steel Industry became the number one producer, supplier of steel in the world. That's how you do it. That's governance competency. That's commitment. That's a will to win. That African countries have yet to demonstrate. Well, this is a great place for us to come to an end of this podcast. I hope you share us with your friends. Your friends share us with your, your circle of uh, uh, social media contacts. Um, if you are interested in this subject matter that we are hammering, Visit UnleashAfricanTrade.com. That's UnleashAfricanTrade.com. There's many where that comes from. There you'll find our newsletter comes out every month. Again, this is, we are honing on the means, the way to make African countries prosperous. We are pouring out ideas and bringing information into that forum, that newsletter, to empower African leadership, to empower decision makers in the continent of Africa so that they can lift up the people of Africa. There's no need for Africans to be poor when there's resources galore, including the people. We'll talk about this next month uh, on our next episode. We'll talk about empowering the people of Africa and Africa that African leaders don't have to do this alone they have an army of young people ready willing and able to bear the torch to carry the torch to bear the road load to bear the cat of economic prosperity thank you for joining us today I look forward to seeing you again on the next episode of Unleash Africa the podcast where we talk about really powerful ways to unleash the people of the continent of Africa. Thank you for listening to this month's podcast. Please visit us online at unleashafricantrade.com slash podcast and stay up to date with all of our latest episodes so you can hear unique, exciting, and transformative ideas about trade between African countries and the world. The Unleash Africa podcast is produced every month. It serves as a continuing conversation about African countries as a viable trading partner in the global economy in order to add jobs, increase wealth, and promote understanding between Africa and the world. Show notes for today's podcast can also be found at UnleashAfricanTrade.com. There you can follow John and Unleash Africa podcast team on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Instagram. You can also purchase John's book, Unleashed, A New Paradigm of African Trade with the World. 
Get automatic updates by adding the Unleashed Africa podcast to your favorite RSS feed or podcast client such as iTunes or Stitcher or follow us on SoundCloud. Join us next month for another episode of Unleash Africa. Until then, live well and be prosperous. And check us out at UnleashAfricanTrade.com.